2021 was a record-breaking year for Israeli startup companies, and this year is on track to be even better. Israel is attracting billions of dollars in venture capital while also producing one unicorn after the next. But as VCs know, behind every successful startup are strategic advisors, helping guide the founders from concept phase to reality. Today, we're joined by one of those strategic advisors, Yonit Golub Serkin, who spent the last few years guarding over 300 Israeli startups, raising nearly a billion dollars and creating 10,000 jobs. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. And welcome back to Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Jared, we have a packed episode ahead with a mutual friend of ours. And I'm not sure if we've had somebody who has known us uh, in our past lives uh, independently, now coming together, worlds colliding in this episode on one of my favorite topics, one of your favorite topics, the Israeli VC startup ecosystem. Uh, let's get straight to it because we have a lot to get through and I want to make sure we have a lot to cover, a lot to cover. cover. All right. Yonit Golub Serkin is a strategic advisor to startups and investors in Israel from 2016 to 2022. She served as managing director of mass challenge Israel, partnering with over a dozen brands, corporations, and governments to build sustainable pilots and investments in startups. She built and guided acceleration programs with over 300 startups and raised nearly a billion dollars and created over 10,000 jobs. Previously, she was a founder of Moonscape Ventures, a corporate development office, Amelia Investments, an early stay VC, and served, wait a minute, this is my favorite, served as Deputy Chief of Staff for Economic Development at the office of Mayor Michael Bloomberg. Yonit, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, guys, for having me. It's great to see you. Uh, So, Yonit's a fellow Bloomberg alum. You're a strategic advisor to startups and investors in Israel. Let's pretend Rich and I are investors looking at Israel. What's your top line strategic guidance? What what do you need to know to be successful? I think the most important thing to remember in Israel is that unlike other ecosystems, what you have found here, what's been created here is really technology innovation that services a myriad of sectors. So regardless of which sector you're actually focusing on or what your um, what your investment strategy or thesis is, you can find relevant technologies here to take back to your existing um, holdings or or portfolio. Um, what we've seen here in Israel really is a maturation of the entire ecosystem. So if a decade ago, we would have been talking about early stage technology innovation that are building tools that are then going to be acquired um, and used in corporates or in uh, later growth stage companies abroad, what we're seeing today is actually innovators and founders who can grow their companies throughout those stages and create really big, meaningful companies. Um, We've seen companies that are not only going public in major numbers, but are also growing and serving uh, their communities from Israel and from abroad. So really a great maturation of the ecosystem. A lot of innovation that crosses the different sectors and very quick time to market for many of these companies getting out there and getting their uh, their technologies and their products to market. 
Yonit, um, on this sort of cross-section of sectors uh, in the innovation space, are there some examples that could sort of make this more concrete for some of our listeners? Sure. I mean, we're seeing, I think people associate Israel with cyber, with security, those sorts of technologies, but we're actually seeing the innovation that extends from food tech, um, so around alternative proteins and new uh, sources of food, to agrotech, to consumer technologies, enterprise software that's really changing the way we do business and particularly grown around this new work from home hybrid uh, uh, universe that we've all sort of gotten to know really well. Uh, Of course, different uh, medical or digital health technologies. That's been a huge new, new in the last couple of years, um, uh, fertile ground for innovation here in Israel. So really across all sectors. And that is something that's very unique to this ecosystem. I think when you look at other ecosystems in Europe or, or in other locations around the world, there's a sector that they're particularly known for. Um, and here in Israel, we're actually seeing that across sectors, And what's truly interesting is that we'll have founders who've built one company to meaningful uh, stature in one type of sector. So maybe they've developed some sort of innovation in the enterprise space. And then their their next iteration or their next company will actually be in the food space or in the insurance space or in some other uh, sector, which is, I think, a pretty unique type of growth and connectivity that you see in than you see in other places. I just want to piggyback a little bit uh, off of Jared's question before. You're working with a ton of investors and also startups. Uh, so you're seeing both sides of the coin within the Israeli ecosystem. What makes a successful investor? What makes a successful entrepreneur in this ecosystem? And the flip side of what are the missteps you're seeing what what is really the distinguishing factor between I'm going to do really well getting into this ecosystem versus I'm not going to do well? So the first thing for the entrepreneurs to to remember, I think, is what does it mean to be part of this ecosystem and to be in or successful in it? Israel's a weird case, right? Because our market is so small, right? There's only 8 million people here, um, 8 to 9 million people. We speak a language that nobody else speaks around the world. We um, are now, thanks to the Abraham Accords, more in touch with our neighborhood. Uh, But we've traditionally been disconnected physically from the neighborhood in which we operate. What that means is that for entrepreneurs to be successful in Israel, they actually have to be successful out of Israel. They have to already be thinking about their growth outside of Israel from day one, frankly, from before day one. So entrepreneurs have to be... um, not just conversant in Israel, but emphatic and passionate in English, but also emphatic and passionate and effective in English. They have to be able to build their products for another market. That's a pretty unique skill. Traditionally, Israeli founders have been really well steeped in technology. They come out of these army units, they're going to the universities, and they're really great technologists. And the, the gap has traditionally been around understanding those other markets, being able to build a significant and large scale business. That's a, that is a um, chasm that Israeli founders have really bridged in the last decade or so. That's the ability to understand what your, um, what your customers or potential customers need, want, and use. That's been the real learnings of the Israeli founders. And that's how we actually can distinguish between those founders who are 
most well positioned to succeed. Those are those that can balance between deep and significant tech innovation and really astute knowledge and, and um, proximity to, to the market um, and to the people who will actually be using their product. I like to say that there has to be, on the one hand, incredible passion and conviction that's coupled with humility and empathy, really being able to understand the experience of other people. Um, and that's not something that is very easy to come by. Those are the those unique founders, people who can, can put together all of those different disparate parts. On the investor side, this is a really exciting market, but it is incredibly dense. I mean, actually, Israel is the most startup dense place in the world. We have one startup for every like 1,400 people. That's a lot of activity. And if you don't have um, the sense or, or the support in being able to filter through great startups and those that are perhaps not well positioned for success, you can really drown in just the general activity here and the amount of noise that there is. Right. Cause and like so you could just go to like Aroma Cafe exactly. and just probably just get a pitch if you just like yeah. raise your hand and say VC. VC. Rich, we should do that. We should just I go think there as a sociological experiment. experiment. Yeah. 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 You, should then, visit, like, you should visit every cafe on Rothschild Avenue and see at which one of them you'll get the most pitches or which one of them will actually attract the most exciting. I'm just going to go on Twitter and be like, you want deal flow? I got deal flow. All right. I'm at every cafe every day. All right. Exactly. But that's, that can be really, really exciting, right? Like it's exciting that every, like your waiter and everybody that you meet has a startup. It's also a lot of work to try to get through that. How do you cut through all of that noise? How do you figure out what actually uh, works? And that's why I think the partnerships that have been developed between investors that are outside of Israel, if they're interested in Israel, and those that are on the ground here can be really, really important um, to, to be able to filter. So, all right. I think you just told us about what the pitfalls are. Uh, if you're if you're a startup in Israel, yeah. what do you what do you think are the opportunities that are unique to the Israeli startup scene, uh, and that these companies have that maybe you know U.S. based uh, startups have or European based startups don't have that 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 makes the the Israeli startup uniquely positioned for success. So it's sort of the question of why in the world have there been so many companies and successful ones that have come out of this or emerged from this tiny spot in the middle of the desert that again, folks that don't speak the same language and, um, and aren't necessarily geographically connected to, to their market. And I think fundamentally it comes down to um, the balance between audacity um, or what we would call chutzpah. <laughs> the audacity of hope, maybe? No, sorry. <laughs> too, too soon, Rich? Too soon. Rich. Sorry, too soon. Um, uh, there, there's definitely a lot of change going on. I know that. Yeah. We'll talk oh, about that. Yeah, ding. Yeah. Okay, sorry, yeah. Yoni. Keep going. Keep going. I think it has a lot to do with sort of the, the chutzpah component, right? The, the audacity to believe that you can actually change the world and you can do this, right? I, I don't think around the world every 18 to 20-year-old thinks they can actually build a product that millions of people are going to buy and is going to make a difference. I think that's a pretty um, optimistic and, and um, powerful belief coupled with availability of knowledge, right? You have lots of young people who are graduating with real skills um, or finishing or entering their early 20s with real tech skills, not something that exists in most part of the world. Um, and when you bring those two together in a ecosystem or in a, in a place that is, um, A, excited about launching new things, 
and has already had enough people go through that process that there's a lot of just knowledge here about how to do it. Um, that's a pretty special, you know, component. That's a pretty special sort of moment in time like, that is creating these opportunities. And the component that, I mean, this is not an original thought to I me, mean, go back to Startup Nation and others since, but the component of this fusion of people who come out of the military, having leadership experience, management experience, technological experience and training, um, that, that has a lot to do with it. I mean, how do you sort of view that as the culture? How do you prepare an investor for that culture as well, who may be foreign to that? It's one of the, it's, it's a great, um, it's a great question. And it's something that I just this week was working with um, a colleague who was coming to Israel for the first time. And some of the prep work that we were doing is really sort of interesting, right? You're going to be meeting people, some of whom might be carrying weapons. That's not something we're used to seeing in business settings. Um, you're going, the people's first references are to what they did in the military. And that creates incredible community. The people with whom um, you've served are people that you trust eyes blindfolded and in every situation, the shorthand that is created by um, men and women who have worked together in high pressure situations is really, really incredible. Uh, and that is, a, that is an incredible shorthand, right? So the people who've gotten into this community, into this network, who find one another, and that's how they launch their companies, that's how they, um, how they find talent to, to work in their companies, either as founders or, or as, um, other staff members, um, that's a really powerful and important component of what is happening here in Israel. I will say there's a challenge that that uh, creates also. For those of us who think that identifying founders and that frankly that good ideas don't have a single type of founder, um, that can be a really challenging space for non-traditional founders to come into. So whether that's women, um, the Arab Israelis, the Haredi Israelis, uh, foreigners, you know, people who have made Aliyah, who've come to Israel, it can be challenging or that can be, it can create sort of an obstacle to entry for those who are coming without the network from the, from the military. And so I think that for, for those of us who care deeply about helping um, access great ideas wherever they may come from, that's one of the things that we're thinking about, about how do you help create um, those opportunities for network, for access, for people who might not have come out of the intelligence units of the army, but still have really great uh, ideas and, and potential. I'd love to back up just a little bit here. I want to delve a lot further in, into the ecosystem here. Can you talk to us about how you got here? Uh, how are you now positioned here? How I personally here? got here? Yeah, how did you, yeah. What is your story, right? That's, uh, our listeners, a little bit of sharing here, a little bit of sharing as we do sometimes with our guests. But, you know, you knew Jared in other lives in, in college and uh, in the mayor's office. Uh, you and I knew each other just starting out in D.C. as young professionals. And here you are, a leading strategic advisor uh, to Israeli startups uh, and, and founders and investors. What's your story? How did you get to this place? This yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I... That's exactly right. So I went to I went to Johns Hopkins. I got I had oh, a, that's right. Got a great friend there named Jared Bernstein. We got to go through a couple of years. We overlapped for a few years while we were in school um, and worked on the on Mayor Bloomberg's first mayoral election. Um, for me, it was the summer after my freshman year 
of college. Jared's a little bit older than I. Um, and so, you know, we knew each other there. I went to grad school in DC where Rich and I got to, to meet. So I, uh, I'm taking ownership of positioning as the only guest or the first guest who's gotten to know both of you in our youth and in other, um, in other contexts. You're also the first to- guest to say in our youth. In our <laughs> yeah, youth. Wow. That, that's, yeah. wow. That's hurtful. Um, that, uh, wow. That yeah, just became I, real. That's right. That's right. Um, I think we've made it to that stage, guys. <laughs> no, do you ever feel that that you're no longer the young kid in the room? Like right, a, right, like a stage the, in life. This is now, by the way, way, this is now a question, I guess, about startups. Is the, the young kids in the room? Totally uh, this, this, not yeah. the young kid in the room. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> There's definitely All right, that. go on, go on with the story. Uh, Come yes. on now. Okay, so um, so worked, it, went to grad school, uh, decided to go back to New York and work for Mayor Bloomberg, was uh, uh, really grateful for um, almost five years as part of his team on the economic development side. And in 2010, my husband and I decided to make this um, dream of Aliyah uh, a reality. And we got on our plane with all of our uh, freshly packaged um registry items about a year after we got married and our new pup and uh, got on a plane and moved to Israel and um, wasn't sure entirely what I wanted to do, but um, but was excited about tech here in Israel, excited about the VC universe and and was really grateful to start working as an investor um, really from the very beginning. So I joined one fund um, in Herzliya where I got to be really from the ground up a founding member of the of the fund. Um, it was a fund that was actually looking at regional investments, uh, investing in the Arabic speaking world as well, uh, something pretty special in 2011 uh, when we started out that work, um, then moved over to a corporate venture arm. So that means working on behalf of a, a European corporate that was looking to actually deploy capital here in Israel and invest in startups. And then for the next six and a half years, I actually led Mass Challenge Israel, which is the largest tech accelerator based in Jerusalem. So we were accelerating between 50 and 70 startups each year, helping them understand their markets, connect to um, potential investors, connect to their clients, um, and ultimately build their companies into more significant growth stage companies. Uh, So got to work with a lot of these really inspiring entrepreneurs who really are changing the world, whether it's by creating, you know, technologies that are helping secure our food for the next hundreds of years um, or helping our businesses work better, helping us identify um, drugs and, and treatments for diseases. Um, and I've just been really inspired by the way entrepreneurs work here um, and being able to help them bridge into markets and investors has been really an exciting and cool thing for me to do. Yoni, tell us a little bit more about Mass Challenge and how it's different from other accelerators. First of all, it's in Jerusalem, which that yeah. in and of itself. So that's the first thing that's different, right? You guys are on the East Coast. And so I know uh, uh, some of the distances that are involved there. And we talk in the tech space, we talk about sort of the differences between New York and Austin and, of course, Silicon Valley. Um, here in Israel, in theory, we're one ecosystem, right? It's an hour, it's a 30-minute train ride now between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, but they operate very separately from one another. And so one of the reasons that Mass Challenge actually came to Jerusalem is because we see innovation as an economic development tool. Ultimately, innovation is about creating products and businesses, and that's about creating jobs. And if we can create a fertile ground for new innovation, for new um, products, that's 
going to create the next employment opportunities. And it, it has this really incredible cyclical effect for the economy. And so Mass Challenge decided to locate in Jerusalem because it was a place that we could make a difference. It was a place that was being um, mostly under looked at. There were a few, a handful of funds, there's really great funds in that are based in Jerusalem, but founders were having a challenging time identifying investors for even getting investors' attention. Um, and of course, being able to connect to one another and connect to the talent that they need in order to make their businesses grow. So Mass Challenge decided to go there, which meant that in year one, we were bringing 40 some odd companies to Jerusalem to locate and grow there, certainly while they were going through this accelerator. And we've done so every year since. Um, and what's really cool is that it became the sort of mecca for, for entrepreneurs from outside of Israel. So every year, about a third of the um, applicants and a third of the companies that ultimately made it into the accelerator, because it's done as a competition, were coming from Europe, we're coming from Africa, we're coming from Asia, and they would come and spend four or five months in Jerusalem working with Israeli innovators, working with Israeli investors. Um, and even though there wasn't a particular um, ambition around Zionism or getting, um, getting Israel to be part of their story, it did mean that Jerusalem was, is going to forever be part of their narrative. How they grew their company they came to Israel. They were able to connect with and to learn from the uh, the startup nation, and that's a pretty cool uh, little little factoid for the rest of us to see that there are now really dozens of innovators who came here, who learned here, who connected here, who were able to build their companies because of the um, information that they were gathering here. And Mass Challenge, as I understand it, has other accelerators internationally and obviously domestically. How did the Israel accelerator sort of compare? Um, I don't know if there's like metrics of this or if it's qualitative, but I'd be sort of interested, you know, internally, big picture mass challenge. How do they view Israel versus other locations? It's a great question because I think it's actually emblematic of the role that Israel can play in the global in the global sort of tech ecosystem to the extent that one looks at this as a unified um, experience. What I think Israelis are good at doing. And I think that's something that's, again, part of the whole conversation about what makes a good entrepreneur and how, how the experience here really affects it, is that we're particularly good at trying things. So pivoting, testing, making a decision to continue or not, learning from that, and then implementing. And it happens very, very quickly. And it can happen, I'm not going to say entirely non-hierarchically, but there is sort of a, this feeling that anyone can come up with any sort of conversation or any sort of suggestion and make it happen. Um, so I would look, and we looked at it sort of uh, entirely as, like Israel was a, a fertile ground to test new things. So whether that was, okay, we want to bring foreign entrepreneurs, we're going to bring them thousands of miles away from their markets, from their homes, and they're going to come and experience something that in theory they're disconnected from, but we genuinely believe that there's great learnings to be had. So we started that here in Israel and it's gone, in for other places. It's gone now to other places. Um, we started doing really focused um, tracks and, and um, sector, um, sort of deep dive sector looks. Uh, Mass Challenge globally is, like, is sector agnostic. Think of it as sort of the first two years of college, right? You can take classes in every major, you can focus, you can sort of explore, um, you can think about new different uh, innovations. So traditionally Mass Challenge specifically is um, open to any entrepreneur who's solving a major problem around the world. And that can mean 
food or it can mean cyber or it can mean anything really. And, um, and so we would say, okay, within that, we want to do specializations. We want to, you know, identify partners who are going to be really, really uh, important in a sector of nanotech, or we want to find it in um, cyber uh, or in impact, right? We want to understand how companies that are um, focused on creating impact, creating uh, positive, um, positive solutions for the UN uh, sustainability, sustainability and development goals. Like we want to look at those sorts of things and we do a deep dive into that. Again, a uh, place to test things, uh, see if it works and then uh, pass it on to the rest of the world. And that's something that we would do sort of uh, over and over again here in Israel. And, and we got a pretty good reputation internally as being a place that wasn't overly process driven because we were able to sort of test, make decisions and, and move forward. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with mindset here. So the, the sort of openness to operating in very undefined spaces and being willing to, you know, it's sort of hard to, to, to start moving when you don't know where you're headed necessarily, um, sort of have a general direction. Um, and that's something that I think Israelis are quite well attuned to, not just in giving directions, but also <laughs> in building their companies where they sort of, um, learn and navigate as you go and, uh, and deal with a lot of uncertainty. You know, you talked about the innovators coming from all around the globe as part of these accelerator competitions. I'm curious a little bit on the money side, uh, what you're seeing. We're obviously American centric here, but we know that there's money from other countries as well, interested in the Israeli uh, system, ecosystem, especially Asia. Where, what are you dealing? What are you seeing? Um, there have been some concerns on Chinese money flowing in. I know those have been raised uh, during the last administration, this administration with the Israeli government and the tech sector. What are you seeing right now? Or besides the American VC money coming in, who else are, are you talking to dealing with? So the, we saw a lot of Asian investors probably about a decade ago. We've seen a lot less in very recent um, uh, periods of time, which has to do exactly with what you're discussing, challenges with the American administration, also just um, their domestic uh, issues. So we've seen less investment by uh, Asian funds or individuals recently. I don't know to tell you that it's, that it's, it's, that, it's um, that way for a long period of time, but certainly that is something that we've seen more recently. Um, and on the flip side, we're seeing more interest from uh, Emirati or Gulf um, investors. There's been a lot of activity in, uh, in the UAE for Israeli funds, for uh, direct investments into startups. I think they're still learning um, how to work with Israelis and, and what that looks like. But there's a lot of excitement around those opportunities. And we've already seen some of the funds from, from the UAE or from other countries in the Gulf that have started investing in not only startups here, but in funds here. So that's definitely a, um, a highway that is getting developed quite significantly. So, so to that end, I'm going to give the one shout out and piece of credit I will ever give to the Trump administration um, for the Abraham Accords. And, and I guess my question is, how have you seen it change, if at all, the way startups are doing business? Um, and what do you think about potential expansion uh, with the Saudis uh, if, if people are to be believed that there is more normalization with Saudi Arabia coming soon? 
So the first thing is that there has been activity with the Gulf and Israel, economic activity between the Gulf and Israel for well over a decade. It was happening quietly, it was happening under the radar, but it was happening. Um, it has certainly increased and- Wait a minute, so really everything people are thanking Donald Trump for doing, Barack Obama did first. All right, got it, got it. Yeah. Well, we already knew All that. Right. The whole thesis is that the Iran nuclear deal had you know, cemented it. So yes, we always thank Barack Obama for the worst deal in history to cement the Iran. Yeah, yeah. Okay, sorry, sorry, Ernie. Yeah, in the just, middle of this Rich, one, Rich and I haven't, <laughs> like, we, we haven't taken shots at each other a lot lately. And so, so we just- please feel free to get it out now. All right, sorry, no, keep, keep, keep going. I apologize for interrupting. No worries. Um, so, but that, but that having been said, even though there was activity that was happening beforehand, there is no doubt that the Abraham Accords has been a significant catalyst in um, in activity between the two countries. I'll say even we, um, as Mass Challenge, launched an accelerator in the UAE. So we were running programs in the UAE. I had team members who were flying back and forth on a weekly basis. Uh, and that's been incredibly significant, sort of the ability to get to another market, their interest in uh, in technologies, um, and really getting to learn one another. I think that there's a lot of significant business there. I will say you are seeing a, um, you know, cultural education, right? Because the Israeli culture and the, um, the Gulf-based culture is very different. I'm not sure you could find more different um, business cultures. And I think that that's taking more time to really understand than certainly than Israeli founders, I think, originally gave it credit for. So what I think we're now seeing is a lot of interest, some really goodwill. So there's a lot of, you know, there are, there are um, founders, Israeli technologists who are going over there on a weekly basis, who are finding open doors to pitch their business, to look for partnerships. Um, and I think you're seeing real meaningful learnings from one another about how to do business in the Gulf. It's very different than doing business in the US. It's certainly different than doing business here in Israel. And Israeli entrepreneurs are learning that. And I think what they continue to have to balance between is what are the opportunities there versus other markets? Can you unpack that just a little, just a little yeah. more? Just say a few more words on that. I'm in, you know, I'm an investor with Jared, and we're looking to go to the UAE to, to do some do deals. Well, yeah, let's do it. What exact? We'll have Kushner's fund funded. Don't worry. What, yeah, exactly. what, what exactly? What exactly do you advise on the cultural disconnects, and and what what are you seeing that is a blockade right now, or or at least a, a challenge, a hurdle that needs to get overcome? So part of it is, I think, just the day-to-day -day work, right? If you think about um, the things that make Israeli small startups or early-stage startups work, it's non-hierarchical. It's very um, fluid. It's a sort of go out there, break doors, figure it out as you're in motion. Um, it is informal. It is... Um, it is creative, it is exciting, but it can feel to outsiders maybe like it's um, unstructured. And I think what we there's a formality in the Gulf, there's a hierarchy, there's a um, reverence for authority, for, um, um, for experience that Israelis have to learn how to navigate. It's a different culture. 
there's nothing wrong with it. It's just a different, um, it's a different system. And I think that entrepreneurs, good entrepreneurs understand that they're selling to different cultures, regardless of where they are. I will say that Israelis have to go through the same process when they're going to the U.S. as well. It just feels a little bit more accessible because we spend all of our time watching American TV and listening to American podcasts um, and sort of thinking ourselves as the 51st or second or third state. But it's the same process where Israeli entrepreneurs, and entrepreneurs from every place, and it's not a, I don't think it's an Israeli issue specifically, have to understand the culture to which they're selling. Um, and it's similar in trying to understand how you sell to Procter & Gamble or to some other corporate in, in the U.S. And it's similar when you have to try to start selling to decision makers in the Gulf. Um, and hopefully that does expand to other, other markets in the Gulf, other countries in the Gulf. I think this is um, one of the most exciting periods of time to live through in Israel. It's one of the places where we can actually, I mean, it's, pretty crazy to think that you can get on a plane in Tel Aviv and land in Dubai two hours later and eat kosher food at more restaurants in Dubai than you can in most American major cities. I mean, that's wild. Um, and it's it's incredible to, to do that and to see that there are Israelis who are doing business openly in the Gulf. That's something that wasn't happening before. Um, and it's in a pretty exciting opportunity takes a lot of learnings. There's a lot, of, there's a long way to go. There's a lot more to be done, but I think we should every so often stop and I don't know, recognize that we're pretty exciting. So joked a little bit earlier with, with Jared uh, on the hope and change piece about the change going on. Obviously a lot of changes over the last five years, changes I would imagine still coming in the next five years. If you could do sort of a zoom out comparison of the ecosystem Big changes, trends you've seen over the last five years versus big changes, trends you predict over the next five years, what would those be? Um, so I'm not in the prophecy space, despite living in Israel. So I don't want to um, <laughs> I don't want to um, prophesize too much. I think what we're seeing here, look, the, Is the Israeli ecosystem is going to continue to grow. It's going to continue to mature. I think we're seeing founders who are coming back for their second or third time. They are more seasoned. They've been through this. They've learned a lot. Um, and, and every time you do it, you do it differently and better. If five years ago we saw an a Israeli entrepreneur who had a very clear road to Silicon Valley, this is how we do it. We raise our first rounds here in Israel. We then go to the States. We start opening up our offices there. We start growing there. I think actually Corona taught us all that things can be a little bit different um, so that you could actually see more companies that are um, headquartered here in Israel and continue to grow. I think that might be something that we'll be seeing. Uh, I think it'll be great for the ecosystem here because it shows a real maturation. We'll have more experienced uh, entrepreneurs, more experienced managers. I mean, it, it all sort of trickles down. And I think that can be a real um, eye-opening space for, for Israel. Um, and I, I mentioned this before, but I think that is something that's pretty exciting and interesting um, for Israeli the, the Israeli entrepreneur um, to actually continue to grow and change. So it's um, that we're going to see new faces and new ideas and new experiences that keep coming up and are actually building out companies and growing them. Okay. So tell us a little bit about your background. Right. Rich and I both know it. We uh, we, we know you in various lives, but tell us about 
where you grew up and, and your journey. And you told us a little bit about yeah. how you got into the, the, the startup space, but tell us about the Yonit journey. The Yonit, the Yonit journey. Um, sure. So I am I'm the daughter of a conservative rabbi and a executive director in the Jewish nonprofit space. So um, very steeped in uh, North American Jewish life. Um, my family made Aliyah when I was an infant for the first time. It's it, it, our household is called Aliyah Aleph. Um, we, we moved over here when I was a year and a half old, settled in Haifa, um, lived there as a, as a young kid, went through um, the first Intifada here, went through the first Gulf War here. Um, as a child and um, moved back to New York, to the New York area for, for um, the end of elementary school, middle school and the like, um, for what was supposed to be a two year sabbatical, but you know, life has a way of, uh, of getting way, getting into all plans. Um, so we ended up staying a, a bit longer, um, went to undergrad and graduate school at Johns Hopkins, um, met Jared in the middle there, uh, worked for the Bloomberg administration and um and have been here ever since um okay so actually speaking of the bloomberg administration um what do you so first of all tell us a little bit about working in economic development for mike bloomberg and then as a sort of second part to that question what do you think it's going to take for u.s cities and cities around the world in general to rebound from COVID? Given given what you know, the collapse of the of the office space market and people having to go to the office. Uh, what do you think it's going to take? But first, tell us about working in economic development for Mike. I mean, I think I think working in economic development is one of the most exciting spaces. It's just some of the most exciting work that you can actually do, um, because at the end of the day, it's an incredible way to touch people. That is that feels optimistic and hopeful and like you're really building for the future. Um, I, I always sort of allude to, you know, when I, when I came in and started working for Mike, I didn't, you know, we were doing a lot of real estate. We were doing a lot of um, financial services. Um, there wasn't yet sort of this plan around tech or VCs, like they existed, that there was this thing, but like, it wasn't, it barely made it onto our desks. It wasn't really a big focus. Um, and how quickly you can switch to being in a mode of no, this is this is what we need in order to serve the talent, and since the talent is what makes the cities, that's ultimately what's going to help us grow uh, long term. And and tech has a really important role in that, in um, exciting talent and keeping talent engaged and keeping them local. Uh, and I think for for me, it's sort of this way to see how policy can drive meaningful change across business and ultimately it's about people, right? There are people who serve the, who serve in these roles, who are building companies, who are building solutions. Um, and, and for me, that's incredibly exciting. I, I have to say that my time in the Bloomberg administration um, in a totally self-serving way ruined all, I think, public service afterwards for me, just because the types of people that were able to come together there, I mean, that, I think even when we were there and I was 22 when I started out there, I mean, the people who come together there, that was a unique space and time. I mean, I think and and it, I felt like it was something special, even at a relatively young age. I felt even then that this was something that was unique and I wasn't going to have the opportunity to work with so many incredibly bright 
ambitious, motivated people who just got it done um, on such a large scale. I, it felt so amazingly special. And then there were people like Jared. And so you oh, really had a whole mix. Yeah, perfect. Really, a you know, was, somebody has I'll to bring say, like, Working with Jared is one of the most fun experiences that you can have. Um, it's almost up there with going to frat parties with Jared, but it's. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. All right. Wait. So, that, but what about the second half of my question? Um, and then we're going to go to the lightning round, which and is totally, super and, fun. So these things, this connects to it, right? Because um, I think American cities and all cities really need to be focused with how do you maintain talent in a place? Because that's what that's what drives everything else. Right. You know, uh, major companies want to be in a city because the talent that they need is there. Um the, the types of jobs that we want to see created actually follow the talent. You don't see as many, uh, um, I see people move to the places because there are companies there, but you actually see a lot more sort of um, job creation that, that, uh, that is driven by the types of talent pools that, that are available. I think the whole role of offices is actually still a question mark. I, you know, if we had talked six months ago, I would have said, okay, that's, you know, we're never going back to offices. We're never going back to them every day. I don't think we're going back to them in the same sort of way. I don't think, I think we have learned to a certain extent um, that FaceTime doesn't mean everything and that we can do some really important work even when we're not in offices. But I'm seeing more and more people who are, who are looking for that community, who are looking for that togetherness and who are driven together, um, even if it's just to work or, or to play one next to the other. And so I think that Cities have this new sort of way to, to uh, this new role to play as being the facilitators of communities and togetherness um, in a way that they didn't before. And I am excited by the type of ideas that we can start seeing from, from cities that are less focused exclusively on commercial real estate and more focused on experience. Um, and in the same sort of way that cities have always been the place that culture comes together, that connection is created um, and jobs are part of that and economic development is part of that, but also sort of this, the arts and the culture that, that drive um, togetherness is a major component of it. I think that's something that we can continue to see and, and that if I were advising um, mayors of major cities, that's what I would be thinking about. What's the sort of unique value proposition that you can bring to the table that's going to drive great people to want to be here. All right, we're going to drive great people to want to stay here just for a few yes. more moments with the lightning round. The lightning round. Lightning we're round excited. Yes. Are you ready? This, this is real. This is happening I don't know now. if I'm ready. Go for it. Okay. First question we ask everybody, your favorite Yiddish word or phrase? And profanity is allowed, if as long as it's in Yiddish. Oh, God. This is, this is like so lame. Um <laughs> I say, I say, the question is like, just to be clear, wait, wait, is the question, question lame or is your answer lame? The question is not lame. My answer is totally lame okay. because I, I grew up, um, I'm the daughter of somebody who grew up speaking Yiddish. And so the only Yiddish that was imparted to me, uh, in any sort of meaningful way were things having to do with, um, some kitty things. Um, and so I, to my kids will often, uh, first of all, I say Oy Vesmir way too often. And my husband laughs at me all the time <laughs> it's it's um it's not funny <laughs> no 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 I'm, I'm, my so mother's gonna listen to this 
My mother's going to listen to this and she's going to say, I say Ovi's mirror way too often. That's why I'm laughing. Sorry. But I, I have also been known to, um, to my kids speak English and Hebrew, obviously. And so they're already embarrassed enough by their immigrant parents who speak to them in English out in public. And then every so often I'll slip in like, uh, how are you feeling? Are you feeling schluffy? How's your keppy feeling? And they want to die. Um, and that's, those are my favorite moments when I can use their, uh, Eastern European heritage to embarrass them just a so little slu- bit. More. So sluffy and keppy. There we go. Yeah, sluffy, sluffy and keppy. Okay. Favorite Hebrew phrase used in the startup world? Mapitom. <laughs> um, what's funny is that the startup world only uses English in and is with an Israeli accent. So, um, so I have been in pitches where people are they'll tell you they're speaking in Hebrew, but every other word is actually in English. Um, so I, I will, I'm blanking, of course, now, but I think that my favorite word in Hebrew is actually not in Hebrew. It's sababa. Everything is sababa. Um, it means like everything's okay. Everything's great. We're moving forward. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my, my generic favorite. Favorite Israeli dish. Shikshuka. Oh, Excellent yes. choice. Excellent. Spi- spicy or it's a, it's a breakfast, it. lunch, or dinner. It is also true. Um, I will asterisk it and say that I, um, on the on the usual, I will go with like a spicy tomato based shakshuka and put some feta cheese in it. But if I'm feeling particularly decadent, I'll go with the green shakshuka, which means that we've got like three or four different cheeses and spinach and no tomatoes. I find the green very controversial at hotel buffets. <laughs> I'm just going to put <laughs> that out there. All shakshuka at hotel buffets is sort of sketchy because it's been sitting there. It's been sitting there. There's like, there's a really important like yoke to white well doneness um, ratio that needs to be hit and nothing in a, I think if you've never had shakshuka, at a youth hostel in Israel, you've never had shakshuka. And the green shakshuka at a youth hostel is not supposed to be green shakshuka. <laughs> anyway. All right, Jared, go on. All right. Uh, all right. Last one. Uh, favorite company or sector that you're watching right now? Ooh. So um, I am not going to say the names of any specific companies, but I am really, really excited by what's happening in the digital health space. I just think that... Um, the, the life-changing ability of these startups to, on the one hand, create better access to drugs, get us the type of treatment that we need in a much more equitable and, um, and, and appropriate way, and find just, just find better ways for us to live. I mean, I think that's incredible. And I think that we can do it from our homes and our phones. Um, I, it's just it's the future. And I think that that's pretty cool. Yonid Golub-Sirkin, dear friend, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Great to have you on. Thanks, Jared and Rich. It's been fun. If you like this show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, Jared, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you.